Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. be working our way through this sheet. But by way of introduction, uh, I want to refer to something that Isabel read in the, in the description and then explain to you how it all works here. We, or this synagogue, I don't know how many people are Jewish or not Jewish, but it doesn't really matter, but Jews very often think that we are just the modern version of the ancient Israelites so that if you went back far enough, they would be just like us, except for a few things. They wouldn't speak English or any modern European language, uh, um, but otherwise, in a general way, yes? The world was flat. The world was flat. Well, there were a lot of other things. There were no germs. There, was, there are a lot of things we have to, what I want to impress upon you is just this one idea. They were totally foreign to us. They could not conceive of us, and we cannot conceive of them. In the same way that everybody here has gray hair, and we can't imagine going back to when our grandparents were children and functioning in the world in which they lived. The only way we could do something like that would be to learn a language and to learn a culture, and as Jews, to learn to keep our heads down in certain, under certain conditions if we're all from Europe. Uh, and if there was somebody who was Sephardic, then you would have to give up, you'd be given up English, and you'd be learning some dialect of Arabic, and you would learn how to talk with Muslims, and you would know about them because it would be important for them, okay? And if you just go back to ancestors in the United States, you'd have to go back to a time when Jews were not considered white people, okay? And when, when we were considered, they didn't know, quite know where to fit us in, okay? We were foreigners because there was no great experience in this country with Eastern European. They just knew Sfaradim, and Sfaradim incidentally tried to press the Jewish authority, the, the political authorities in the United States not to accept too many Eastern European Jews because we weren't good stuff. Now, all of this is a world. Now, jump back a thousand years earlier to the Middle Ages. In its and that's a world in which there were, rab there were rabbis, the Talmud already exists. Go back to the world of the Talmud. We think of those rabbis as walking around and speaking Hebrew. They didn't. They spoke, if they were in Babylon, they spoke Arabic. And if they were in Palestine, they spoke Greek and Latin and Aramaic. How could, an, how could you be an educated person and travel around the world? Everybody knew Aramaic, okay? Hebrew was a language that you learned in school 
and you could converse in it. Uh, but at some point, it was, it was a language only of learned people, in the same way that a friend of mine was among the last group of Jesuits who uh, completed their education in Latin. I mean, in 1960, he was taking courses in Latin as a, as a language of communication and writing papers in Latin. So it's a world that is very different from us. And yet, and I try to work this out today, how many generations would it take us to go back to, the, say, the time of King David? I'm guessing it's about 100 generations. That's what it would be like. But we could only reach back maybe three, four, five. Over Sukkot, I was at a Sukkah where there was one woman who claimed that she actually had, because her family came from Portugal, she actually had written records and she could take, go back to 1638. And we were all amazed okay, that, 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 was, that this was going on. But it's, it's so far and it's so distant and it's so past. So what do Jewish historians do? We try to understand how, the, how Jews living way back then, whatever that period is, it could be ancient, as the periods where I work, or more recent, say, 16th century, 15th century. What was the world like? Why did people do the things that they did? What was different about them? And how joyful we are when suddenly we get an original document. Because an original document can tell us what were people talking about? What was of concern to them? From the, on the basis of a document, I can figure out, very often, it depends on the content, I can figure out what people are doing and what they think and what they believe and what's important to them. Imagine, you can do this at home. I won't do it here. But you pull out your wallet, okay? This wallet has stuff inside of it that's so totally irrelevant that it's unbelievable, okay? I have, I have a note here from my kids, from my daughter who's almost 50 when she was about 10 years old. Uh, I have bus cards on companies that I'm not sure that they exist anymore. But you can figure out from your wallets, women are even better from the purses, okay, that you use. You can figure out a great deal about the person and the life and the circle. So a letter, imagine finding a wallet. Imagine finding a purse. You don't find that too often in archaeology, so you find a letter something. And that's wonderful, too. And it keeps many of us very, very busy. Internationally, I would guess there were about 100 people across the world, mainly in the United States and in Israel, and then smaller group of pe people, scholars in, in Western Europe, a few now in Eastern Europe, in Russia uh, in, in particular, uh, who are interested in this and are interested in the deciphering of, of, of documents that come from the ancient Near East and then trying to figure out into the, into the world of ancient Israel. And that's what we're going to do here. So we don't have to know a lot about archaeology. Uh, in fact, you know, we don't have to know anything about archaeology because what I'm going to be talking about is this. I'm talking about written documents that were found. We're going to take a look at three letters from the dead. They come to us and they're accidental, accidental discoveries. We are not the intended audience. This is, what, this is what's important. In the same way that we are not the intended audience of the Bible. When Isaiah was standing and speaking, Isaiah was speaking to people who were in front of him. He couldn't have imagined us. 
So we're not the audience. So that means that we are something like eavesdroppers. And there's a certain advantage. Those of you who have cell phones or watch people, but you know if you don't do it, you certainly watch people, who can conduct co private conversations in the loudest of voices on cell phones because they think that when they're talking this way, nobody understands what they're talking about. And you can find out, I've, I've learned about marriages and divorces. <laughs> I've learned about affairs of people. I don't know the people, okay? I don't know the people. But, and I've gotten some really great lines that if I were a playwright, I would love to use them. Now, it ends up that somebody actually writes poetry riding the subways and buses of New York, collecting lines that she strings together and then publishes them. And it's all innocent because nobody knows, like, unless she has a fan who reads something and sees themselves in print. So that's what we're going to do. So I want to ask you to turn to the first page. And what I've done on the first page simply is I'm showing you some important sites. What you have in the middle is, the, uh, is a, a map of Israel. You see, the Dead, you see the Dead Sea over there in the middle. And it's the southern part of the country. Uh, in the upper right-hand corner, you see uh, a map. You can see the temple over there on the, on the upper, in the middle of that square. I'm talking about the upper right-hand corner there. You see the temple outline. And then you see the old city walls of today. Okay? The city in the time of the Bible simply looked like a sausage that extended south of the temple. Those walls are all, the walls that we see today were built in the 16th century. They were, they were built by a Muslim king. And, but they're on, on, in many cases, they're on the foundations of walls from the second temple period. We're going to go back. We're going to be in the first temple period. So that's Jerusalem. Now you'll see over there in that same box, you'll see something, Ketev Hinom. Okay. Ketahinom is, how many of you have been to Jerusalem? Okay, that's wonderful. So in Jerusalem, how many of you have been to the Begin Center, the Menachem Begin Center? Okay, one, too bad. Okay, that's very, no, it's good that you were there, but it's too bad that you weren't there. When Ketahinom was built, it was built just below, it was built in a sort of a ridge where there's, the mountains begin to descend to a valley it's between the east city and the, west, and the old city. So those who've been in Jerusalem to Mamilla, you're actually in a valley, and then you walk up the stairs and you come into the Jaffa Gate. That valley is called the Valley of Hinnom. So Ketev Hinnom means the, so, the, the shoulder of Hinnom. This is like where the hill, Jerusalem is over here. You come out of the hill, and you come up, and you're on this hill over here. And a man named Gabi Barkai, Gabriel Barkai, an archaeologist, discovered a number of tombs there. Why did I mention the Begin Center? When the Begin Center was about to be built, and my cousin happened to be one of the big donors to the center, I said, and there was a, there was a problem. They wanted to cut away part of the mountain so that the building would be snug against the mountain, and they were going to cut away the graves that Barkai had excavated. I said, so I, we were out to dinner one night, and I said, you can't do that. I said, you have to. I said, you, there's enough 
political clout that you're going to be able to get away with it. I said, but imagine incorporating those graves into the building. And so actually, they did finally, I convinced them that it was a thing that was doable. And it was, it was ultimately done. And these graves were preserved. What they found in these graves, it was a burial cave because our ancestors in, who lived in Jerusalem didn't bury in the ground because the ground is too hard. So they used to place bodies in caves. And then when the body disintegrated, they would gather the bones and they would put them into a, an area of the cave which was basically a collection of bones. And from that idea of collecting the bones and putting them together, that's where we get this biblical expression he was gathered unto his ancestors. Okay, that's what it seems to have meant. In one of the graves, that for whatever reason, the grave was never cleared. So at the bottom of the grave, there was stuff that was there going back to about the 7th century BCE, when Jerusalem was standing and when a king named Josiah was the ruler. And over the centuries, for this access to this part, this particular tomb was easily gotten. You could gain access to so People kept adding stuff and throwing stuff into there. When he found it, at the very top, there were rifles. There were Turkish rifles from the First World War. Okay, And then as he went down, he went through the medieval period and later periods and then event, and earlier periods, rather. And then he eventually got to the Israelite layer. And in there, he found, a, near, in the area of bones and other pottery that he could date, he found two silver scrolls with prayers on them that were wrapped up. Okay, now, do you remember when it was very popular for everybody to wear a mezuzah? This was a big thing. These silver scrolls, which are on exhibit in the, Hebrew, in the, in the, in the museum in Jerusalem, apparently were worn on a cord around somebody's neck, like a mezuzah, as an amulet to protect them. We're going to take a look at one of them. So if you'll see the arrow that goes from that box, and there's a little X marks the spot, that is where Ketachinom is, and that's going to be one of the documents that we're going to look at. If you'll see then, Roughly approximately, if you continue from that X on the right side of, on the Israel map to there's another X on the other side of the map. And that was a place called Yavne Yam. Yavne by the sea. It's a small, it's a very small site. The whole site easily would, you could put it two times into this room. Okay? But there they found in the course of excavations, they found a letter, okay, a legal document, okay, sort of a small claims court type of a document, and we're going to read that document. Okay? It's a place in the middle of nowhere. We do not know what it was called in the biblical period. We know that Israelites were there because we have the pottery and we have, an and we have inscriptions and letters from there, but we don't know anything about it but we can create part of the world on the basis of this letter that we're going to look at. And then we're going to take a look at, and then now look at this map over here on the lower left. And this is a map, you can see Beersheba up in the north. 
And then you cross the border into Sinai Peninsula of today, Egypt of today, and you'll see Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is, you, I, there's an X shows you roughly where Kadesh Barnea is on the big map. And Kadesh Barnea is important to us because it was, it's reported in the Bible as one of the major stopping points of the tribes of Israel when they were en route from Egypt. They spent close to 38 years there, according to the biblical narrative. South of Kadesh Barnea, about 50, uh, about 50 kilometers south of it, is a place that is absolutely, you would not stop for it, okay? A place called Kuntilat Ajerud. It was excavated by a friend of mine, a man named Zev Meschel, in 1970. Story's interesting. Zev Meschel was very, in, as an archaeologist, he wanted to know how did ancient Israel, which, if you imagine, Beersheba is the southern part of, southernmost part of ancient Israel, and then it, because as you travel south from Beersheba going towards Eilat, there's not enough water to raise crops or anything. So that was roughly the southern border of the ancient kingdom of Judah. And he was interested in a line of fortresses from this period, from the biblical period, that stretched from the area of Beersheba all the way across the Negev into the Sinai Peninsula. And in the 1800s, a few, a, a French explorer and an American minister and a British explorer had gone to this site, Contilida Drood, uh, and they'd climbed it. The Bedouin, their Bedouin guides had taken them to the top of the site. And just walking around, they sort of figured out that maybe this was a fortification. Okay, so Meschel became very interested in the site, and he visited it in 1970, and then he came back and he, he excavated it for over 1971 and 72, or 70, 71, for in a period of um, over three months, roughly, but not complete, complete months. He came with, he found a bunch of crazy people who were volunteers who came down there. About half of them became major archaeologists in the country. Now, the thing with Meschel's work was, he didn't publish all of it immediately, but he found something that is so unbelievable and so significant from this nothing site that if you didn't know or think to climb up on top of it, you would have driven by it. It looked like a butte okay, that you have in the desert over here farther north. Now let's take a look. Let's go on to the next page. This is, this is, a, this is the, a picture of the amulet after it was unfolded. How many of you, some of you may have seen it or may recall it from the museum, okay? It's very difficult to unfold because it's metal. And the, tr the trick was, what are you gonna, how are you gonna unfold it? Because if you unfold it, it's gonna break. So they actually ended up breaking it over and over and over and gluing all the pieces back together. And that's what you have over here but you can see that it was rolled in on itself, and you can actually see where the cord cut away the size of it because it was, it was mounted horizontally, so the cord pulled up, so it broke away part of the metal over here. What you see over here 
on, on the far right side is called, it's called a, an autograph. It means that the person who deciphers this draws what he sees or she sees. Okay? And it's very difficult to see that on the, on the silver. She worked with the silver originally, and she has very good eyes. She was actually a, a, an artist and, and calligrapher who ended up doing this most of her life. And she's very good. And so this is what she drew. And then on the basis of what she drew, it went over to other people whose task is to decipher what this means. Because this is from... 7th century Hebrew. And what you have then is on the top of the regular Hebrew print, you have the letters as are, that are seen there. If you see a dot above a Hebrew letter, it means uncertain, uncertain, uncertain. Okay? Very often it's uncertain. It's easiest to guess on the first line. You see, the tops of the letters on the first line in the autograph are cut off. So they, all they could do is guess from the bottom shape of the letter, and make, but they have to legitimately say uncertain, uncertain, uncertain. Sometimes if you have the last part of a word, you can guess what the first part of a word is, and that's what you see a bracket on the right side of line two and then uh, line nine. They're guess, but these are what we call intelligent guesses. Sometimes you can fill in the bracket, sometimes you can't. And then down below, you have the translation in, into Hebrew. Let's take a look what we have over here. For somebody whose name is Yahu, it could be Yirmiyahu, Eliyahu, we don't, know, we don't know what the name is, but we know how it ends. And that's already an important piece because it tells us that whoever named this kid is a worshiper of the God who we, whose, whose name is written in the Hebrew Bible, yod Hey vav Hey or Y-H-W-H, we pronounce it Yahweh, okay? And his name was Yahu, and that shows that his parents, so it could have been Yirmiyahu or, again, Eliyahu. Eliyahu, my name is Yahu, whatever it is. And then, be, may he, this person be blessed, okay, to Yahweh. Someone is writing this charm, and the charm is a prayer on behalf of this guy, and the nature of the prayer is, may he be blessed to the God of Israel, the person in our history that we know as the God of Israel. And what about who is this God of Israel? This is what the person writes down. Who helps and who rebukes evil. It's very interesting. Okay. Uh, God is a helper, that appears very often in the Bible, but Goer bara, who roars, who, who rebukes like roar and evil, okay, that's, that occurs, I think, only once in the book of Job. And then he goes on and he says, May Yahweh bless you and protect you. May Yahweh cause his face to shine upon you, and may he grant you peace. Sound familiar? Okay, from where? It's the priestly blessing, okay? So now what we're looking at over here, this is something absolutely fantastic. This is the first time ever found a fragment or a piece of biblical literature in original script from the biblical period, okay? 
But there are some, there are some differences uh, between this and uh, uh, between what we have in the, in the Bible and, what's, and the blessing uh, over here. Okay? Open it up on the right side. Okay. So the priestly blessing is a very, is actually, it's always funny how things, what, what happens. The priestly blessing isn't really a blessing, it's a prayer. Okay. So th this is the way in the Bible, this is what we find. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. Say to them. So when the, the priest, those, how many of you have seen a priestly blessing? It's the benediction on the Chagim, okay? So you see the priest come up, hide themselves under the talit, and why are they doing that? So they won't see who they're blessing because they're blessing Israel. I don't direct, I don't direct it to you or to you or to you. It's for Israel. And I don't want to see who's being, I'm, okay, I'm just acting on God's behalf over here, okay? And you will bless the people, Israel, and say to them, and what is my blessing to them? The blessing is that God should protect them. I, my blessing doesn't give you protection. I am offering a prayer to God. Now, follow what the amulet has and take a look what happens. The Lord bless you and protect you. Okay, may Yahweh, the, may the Lord bless you and protect you. The Lord deal kindly and graciously with you. May Yahweh, oops, oops, what happened? Missing. Something is missing. Something is missing. Okay. The Lord deal kindly. Okay, I'm giving you the translation here. The Lord deal kindly and graciously with you. The Lord bestow his favor upon you and grant you peace. Okay? You have a, what happened actually is the two blessed, there are three blessings in the priestly benediction that are given here and in the priestly benediction that is used on the holidays, okay? That's uttered or sometimes it's used on bar mitzvahs and parents give it to the kids. Here there are only two such lines. What's happened is what we have the second and the third, and this is I'm referring to numbers. It's numbers six, uh, verses twenty-two to through twenty-seven. You have this in the Bible. It's not the same. Now, so the question would come: Well, so what's authentic? What's the better of the? What's what's what do we do? So I don't know. If what we have in the Bible. Is, is, is the better version than over here. Somebody writing from memory just collapsed two of them together. If, however, this is authentic, then someone over here expanded it. Yes? I mean, other, what's the next oldest example of the prayer that survived? Odds and ends. Ah, no, no, of, of the prayer that survives? Post-biblical. So once, once, this become, once this becomes the official book on our constitutional document, then this is what we use. People were surprised to find this. No one expected to find this. But there's enough here. The moment, the moment 
we read it, some people were already saying there was a smile of recognition. But what you were, what you were recognizing over here was it's not exactly our priestly benediction, but it is the priestly benediction. There's no question about it. Um, how many people here follow Hebrew, the Hebrew? Kacha, kacha. Okay. All right. So I will uh, check it out at home, and you'll, and you'll be able to see it. But yes? I, from, from the blessing and from the, the form of the amulet, is it possible to tell who might have owned, would this have belonged to a child, to a traveler? Can you tell? How did they date it? Huh? It was what? How did they date it? How did they... Ah, the dating is based on the pottery that was found adjacent to it at the level of the, of the tomb and on the, base, on the shape of the letters. Hebrew, Hebrew handwriting changes roughly over every 50, 60 years. But it changes differently in different parts of the country during the biblical period. So this is southern Hebrew. It's, a southern, it's southern Hebrew. And the handwriting fits, matches the pottery. That's the way it's, that's the way it's dated. Um, Could it be that just silver was expensive and for a child's amulet, they just wrote a little short version? Um, well, we're not sure that we have all of it. This is part of the problem. Another part of the problem is, why a child? Why don't you suggest a child might have it? Um, because it's a blessing for protection. And I don't, I don't know. You, you know, I, I guess maybe just as a woman, I, I see that, and I think that's something a parent might want for their child. Ah, okay. See, had, okay, well, I'm just going to... People didn't invest all that much in children <laughs> for the simple reason they children died. died. Yeah. Children died. You didn't become emotionally attached to children. And by the time your little child, your little girl was 12, she was married. <laughs> so we don't think, we think this is an adult. We think this was most likely worn by an adult. And there was another one that was found adjacent to it with the names of, and the names are all names of adults, of men. So we're not quite sure. We're not sure. I mean, it stays open. And right now, actually, there are now about a half a dozen people who are asking the question, what did pe how did people relate to children in the biblical period? And they're looking for evidence of toys, um, beds, furniture, toy pottery. They're looking for it. Now, I don't know what the outcome will be. Yes, sir. Where was I don't know. The silver, I don't know where the silver, uh, where the silver itself was from. It's a precious metal, and that's why. To the best of my knowledge, no. No. Uh, but what silver, it's not a rare, it's not a rare metal, and it's primarily used as a form of payment as a form of payment. Uh, you know, they'd squish it all together and they would cut it by weight. Um, so I, uh, there, I can't help you with that. But it's clear that someone wrote it out, made a sheet, wrote on it, scratched the metal, wrapped it up. It was worn, and we get it. And we can infer a lot from this. People wore amulets. This is a wonder. If they're wearing amulets, they're so superstitious. Okay. Uh... Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. 
There was still an Arab, a holy man, a holy Arab who was a Muslim who lived in Beersheba who wrote amulets for Muslims and for Jews. If you were a Muslim, he used verses and words from the Quran. If you were a Jew, he used words and verses in Arabic by, from a book that he copied from, the, from Maimonides. Okay? He, wouldn't, he wouldn't write Hebrew, because he would, but he was writing a Jewish neutral sort of a thing for Jews. But, and then he was paid well. Um, so this already tells us about a, about a culture in which people are doing something that the Bible doesn't want them to do. Don't use amulets. Don't pray to the dead. Don't use magic. Don't go to magicians. Don't try to go to future tellers. Okay, All of these things. Can't it be that those are common practices and they're trying to have them cut back? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't forbid things that people weren't doing. Correct. Correct. And the Bible, remember, most of the mitzvot in the Bible are negative. Don't do this. So that means people were doing a lot of things. We're going to come back to this changing alphabet uh, to the, at the bottom of the page afterwards at the very end. This is a letter that was found at that site south of Tel Aviv called Yavne Yam. And this is actually a very major importance. Again, you see a photograph of the actual document. It was written on a broken shirt, on, on shirts from a broken piece of pottery. But most of the stuff that we find is written on broken pottery. They didn't have paper. This was cheap. And you have military correspondence written this way. We have receipts written this way. We have personal letters written this way. This is actually a legal petition. And then you have the autograph, vocalized Hebrew, and the translation below. May my lord, the governor, listen to the word of his servant. As for your servant, your servant was harvesting in Chatzar Asam, which means the courtyard of the silo. It'll pay, you'll see why it's important. And your servant harvested and finished or measured and stored in the granary as always before Shabbat. Or it might mean before stopping. I, did, I finished my work and then I stopped working. When your servant had measured his harvest and stored in the granary as always, then came Hoshaya, the son of Shobai, and he took your servant's garment. It was when I had measured and completed my harvest as always that he took your servant's garment. He's complaining over here, this guy took my garment. And I was doing exactly what I'd done before. And all of my brothers, my fellow workers, will answer for me. They'll testify on my behalf. Those who harvest with me in the heat of the sun. And all my brothers will confirm my testimony. I am innocent of doing something wrong. And now, okay, please return my garment. And I call out to the governor to return the garment of your servant. So grant him mercy that you return the garment of your servant. And do not confound me. Okay? Don't, 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 don't uh, the Hebrew word is tadhimeni. Uh, don't, don't make me like gasp as, as if I can't believe you're not going to give it back to me. This is small claims court stuff. Yes. But the names were very common. 
What? Alaska names were very common. Yes. It seems that this Yahoo from the Amalek grew up and turned out to be a thief. He grew up where? It looks like he grew up and turned out to be the thief that took this guy's coat. <laughs> Not necessarily. No, Yahoo names are pretty common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even, even, even today, even today. But now, what's the complaint about? Let's, what's it, what? It's not theft, because the, the relationship of the person who's writing this letter or who is paying to have this letter written, which makes more sense, okay? What's his relationship to the person who took the garment? Employee or Correct. It's my boss. Okay, and my boss is referred to. Okay, it, 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 it was there, and I am appealing to an officer. I'm appealing to someone who is over my boss. And what is the injustice that is being claimed? What is he claiming was done to him? He took his garment. Why would he have taken his garment? Because he thought he did something wrong. Because, right, he, the, 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 the person in charge thinks that he did something wrong. Okay? So he's punishing him by taking away his garment and insisting that the guy complete his work. It has to do with labor. It has to do with labor over here. And he's saying, I finished my work. The grain is all stored. Let him give me back my garment. Now, when this was discovered, people's eyes just popped open. It, it, it is so, well, okay. Exodus chapter 22. There's a law dealing with this specifically. In Exodus chapter 22, I'll start at verse 24. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, do not act towards them as a creditor. Exact no interest from them. Exact no interest from them says, there's nothing to stop you, but it's not a nice thing to do. A guy needs, he needs a loan, give it to him, he'll pay you back. Okay, that's verse 24. If you take your neighbor's garment and pledge, okay, I'm giving you some money. You give me your garment. Basically, with the garment, he's not talking your underwear stuff. He's taking a, a cloak that was a, a heavy cloak that collateral. kept what? Collateral. As collateral. Okay. If you take your neighbor's garment and pledge, you must return it to him before the sun sets. It is his only clothing, the sole covering for his skin. In what else shall he sleep? Therefore, if he cries out to me, I will pay heed, for I am compassionate. Okay? So this is the verse that popped into everybody's head right away. In other words, you come and I give you money, you give me collateral. But what happens with nighttime? I have to give you back the collateral so that you can sleep. And then in the morning, you have to give it back to me. I mean, imagine having to return the car every time you have to, you know, to the bank. So there's something over here that this garment is, is more, is, is a very important role. But there's, there's another law 
that we find in the book of Leviticus. Same thing. Um, I, just, I wrote it down here in Hebrew. Uh, so, Lot Tashok, don't don't um, oppress your your fellow Israelite and don't steal. Don't Lot uh, don't leave overnight in your pocket the wages of a worker. Okay, until the morning. In other words, you worked for me today. I cannot keep your salary in the pocket in my pocket until and you show up tomorrow morning. You finish the work, I have to pay you. Okay? This is part of what is this this is part of what's uh, 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 of the thing. So I'm supposed to pay you immediately. Over here it's not clear exactly in our letter it's not clear exactly but somehow the collateral is being taken for what? Is the, is the boss saying, you didn't do all your work, I'm going to take this back? We're not sure if there's a loan involved, but there might be something else that's involved in this. And I want to make the following suggestion. In Israel, people pay taxes, especially once you have a monarchy, someone has to keep the king going. The army has to be paid. And part of that was paid by a tithe. Another part of it was paid by what is called in Hebrew mas or misim, which is the he modern Hebrew word for taxes. But this was taxes paid in labor. That is to say, when you were finished with your farming and you had your you, you brought in your crops, you then went to work on royal land. And you did work there, you did a month's work there. It wasn't costing you anything because you had nothing else to do. Okay? And this type of tax labor, uh, of a labor tax, exists in Israel. It was the result, for example, of the breakup of Solomon's kingdom into two kingdoms because the people who lived in the north, the tri Solomon was a member of the tribe of Judah. The tribes to the north complained he was taxing them too heavily. They didn't object to paying taxes and to doing the work. They objected to the labor. And that it was too much, it was too harsh. And so they killed his tax collector. Okay? The, so the son of Solomon's tax collector, and that it led to the splitting up of the kingdom. So what may be going on over here is the following. The worker owes labor. You all show up because your names are on the list. And that labor, okay, you all come, give me your garments. Okay? It's a hot day, Mediterranean breeze over there, you're going to do your work, and when you've completed the work of the day, you'll get your garments back. Now, I don't necessarily have to, after I've done it once or twice, and I see they've left their, their, their coats over here, their cloaks over here, I don't have to worry about it too much, do I? I see them, I see them every day. It's the same gang of 20, 30 people. But now, I see this guy over here, he hasn't been doing, he's been a slackard. I take his cloak. And that might be, I'm inventing a scenario to justify the letter, the, the, the letter that I've read. Welcome, Rabbi Shabu. And so, he goes it, and uh, 
I claim I've done everything I'm supposed to do. And this guy says not. I want you to return my garment. The Bible doesn't give us exactly a matching. We don't have an exactly matching case over here. But we do have over here this business of the relationship between a boss, the power to confiscate, to confiscate private property to the benefit. And it's clearly we're dealing with state officials over here. I'm asking the officer to command his subordinate to give me back that which is mine. I am a free man. I was working for your subordinate. That explains, and that's on that basis, we can understand it has to do with taxation. But here, then, what we have over here is something remarkable. Because the laws that we have in the Bible, we have another reference to something like this. Also, we have in Leviticus, and we have in Deuteronomy 24. I'm going to skip that one. Uh, is has to do with taking clothing, taking pledges. That kept people honest. Because people didn't have you know, a, a workday suit and a Shabbos suit and, then a, and, a, and a special uh, Rosh Hashanah suit. They were the same thing until it wore out. So we're dealing something, but suddenly we, this letter comes out, and for the first time, my goodness, this is an archaeological artifact, this pottery that was put together by specialists who actually are able to work these puzzles out, and then deciphered, and we have this really important thing. Now, what's very interesting is a, a citation from the Gospel of Matthew. Okay? Jesus is, is telling a parable to the people who are standing in front of him, and he says, it's, When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard came and said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, starting with the last one hired and moving to the first. Okay? So Jesus is recorded in the Gospel of Matthew as instructing his foreman to follow the law that we have in Exodus. Okay? In other words, this law, these laws have a long history of being followed because they're ethical. They're the right thing to do. No one gets hurt. But what we see over here is the misuse of power and authority, assuming that the plaintiff is correct. Or we see a smart guy who was lazy and is going to play the system. And maybe someone will be nice. We, have, we can't adjudicate the case, but we can appreciate the case. And we realize from that this case is clearly related to some of the laws in the Bible. And we see them in action, even though we don't exactly know what's going on. Sort of it's like the good wife with a big question mark at the end. Okay. And that's the second case from Yavnayam from this place, two of which can fit into this room, found by the Mediterranean under a pile of sand. Yes? Was that the pottery, David? The pottery, yeah. The, the, uh, again, we're looking roughly 7th century. Now the last thing, the last page, is from that site, Kuntilida Drood, in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula. Down in the lower left, is a poorly reproduced picture, but you see the top of the, you see the butte over there, the top of that hill? Flat, that's where on that site, on that flat part of the site, on the, on the left side of the site, 
actually, that's where that fortification was found. But it ended up not being a fortification. It ends up that when they cleared it, when they actually were able to clear it, and the ruins were standing to roughly to a height of between two to eight feet at the highest point, it was, again, something that would fill this room. Uh, storerooms along three sides. When you entered through the doors, you entered a gate area. And to the right and to the left were like chambers off to the sides. And one of those side chambers was clearly a place of worship. And in the side chamber, you found a huge pithos standing, say, from the floor to about like this, about so wide, okay? And on it were the pictures that you see on the top of the page and the Hebrew writing across the top. See, you see the figure? There's a, there's a female figure. You see her two breasts that are indicated. There are, three, there are three images there. There's a lyre player, a woman playing an instrument. Then there, next to her is a, fe a standing figure, hands like sort of in a military at ease position. And uh, she seems to have a crown, but she has two little breasts. And you'll see the lyre figure also has two breasts. And then you have a bigger figure, uh, looks like a Carmen Miranda hat or some bananas stuck on his head, something like that. Uh, next to them, down below on the pot, you have, uh, you have a cow and a calf, which is supposed to, this is a standard ancient Near Eastern image from Egypt and Mesopotamia for, and, and uh, Syria, all, all over the ancient Near East, indicating uh, peace and, and ample food. It's a symbol of that. Take a look at the back, on the back side of the pot, you have three animals in the upper register. Okay, the first thing, the, on the right side, you seem to have, it's a, it's, it's a cat of some sort. It might be a Syrian lion. Then you have a boar, okay? And uh, then, and you have, and the boar is interesting because the boar is, the, the boar is masculine, is male, has, it has pigs, pigs have a curled penis. So it's like a, and, and, and the cat also seems to have a penis indicated. And uh, the, the other animal without the head is most likely a horse with a bridle, some sort of bridle, but the, the head is missing. Then on the, underneath that, you have two gazelles or ibexes that are eating from a tree. And we know that this, this, represent, this representation of a tree is a sacred tree. It is a symbol for a goddess. And then that is on top of a lion. Now, what is interesting, first of all, is in much of the Near Eastern art, divine figures are represented as standing on the backs of animals. Sometimes a horse, sometimes a lion, sometimes a bull. Okay, We have one interesting example of that in the Bible itself. Do you remember in the story of the golden calf? Now, first of all, what's the golden calf? All it means is it was a small image, it does, it, but it's an image of a bull. And 
Aaron says to the Israelites, okay, here are your gods, or here is your God, O Israel, who brought you forth from the land of Egypt. And he's pointing to the animal. Or is he? The God of Israel is an invisible deity. And therefore, a way of being a little bit nicer towards Aaron is he's pointing to the pedestal on which the invisible God of Israel is standing. He wasn't saying, pointing to the animal. He's pointing in the direction of the space on top of this bull or this golden, or the golden calf. It's exactly the same way that on Yom Kippur, we read the description of what goes on in Yom Kippur in the, in, in, in the temple. The priest goes in and goes into the Holy of Holies and he stands before the invisible God who sits enthroned on above the cherubs, on, above the ark and the cherubs. He's invisible. What are the cherubs? They're mythical animals. They're mythical creatures, rather, that are partially human with wings. Sometimes they're bull-faced. Um, we don't exactly know what they are, but it's the invisible deity is enthroned there. All that Aaron is telling B'nai Israel, the Israelites, is here is your God. This is what we're looking at over here, except here it's not a bull, it's a lion. Now, there's something else that's interesting. The sacred tree with the two animals nibbling at leaves is a motif that's found all over the ancient Near East, in art, in small art, in this. So right, about, right away looking at that, we, we think, wow, pedestal and sacred tree. Now let's go back to the first scene. The inscription that we have on the restored pithos says this, method of, uh, message of something. We now actually read it a Mariauk because there are better pictures. Speak to Yaheli and to Yawasa and to someone else. I have blessed you to Yahweh, to the God of Shomron, of Samaria, and to his Asherah. What's an Asherah? Does that name echo any for anybody? It's a goddess. There's a goddess named Asherah. God has a female companion. I don't want to say companion. It's, it sounds sexual. There's a female presence that is associated with God. Now, this idea still exists. Okay? We speak of Adonai and his Shekhinah, the divine presence that is understood as feminine. So the idea is not entirely foreign, and it's part of our living tradition to this day. But now, there's something that's very, very interesting. Take a look at the picture, who, what is portrayed. A male figure, a large male figure, and a female figure. And the blessing is, I have blessed you to Yahweh and to his Asherah. 
And then you flip to the back side, or you, flip, or you turn the pithos, and in the back you have a picture of an asherah, the sacred tree, which is the symbol of the goddess. So now the question comes up. This is the, and this is where it gets a little bit hinky. Um, is this a picture of God? Is this a picture of a goddess? Well, the face looks a little bit fun. It's a human body. Okay? These over here. These two. Okay? Is this God? Is this a picture of God? Well, the answer is quite Jewish, yes and no. Okay? What do I mean? What other culture are you familiar with in which gods have human bodies but strange-looking heads? Egyptian. Egyptian. Take a look at the map. Kuntilat Adrud is in Sinai. You get in a jeep, you can drive and cross the Suez Canal. It'll take you a few hours, but you drive across. It is very close to Sinai. It's very open to influences from Sinai. But there's something else that's very interesting. The faces of both of them are very, very similar. The, the, both the Asherah and, 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 the, and God, the God face. The faces can be either those of something belonging to the cow family, the bull family, or to the lion family. And for various reasons, um, I suggest that this is a lot, this, this head is, supposed, is a stylized lion, is a stylized lion, and is a face that is associated with an Egyptian deity named Bes, B-E-S, not Bes, you is my woman. And who was Bess, and why would, they, why would an image, a face of Bess be placed on top of, the, of, of a human body? Bess is a deity whose image, whenever you would see that image, you wouldn't necessarily think Bess, but you would think God, divine, someone who's divine. Because in Egyptian art, you have the best head on top of a human figure, but labeled below can be the name of this deity or that deity, different deities. So if you saw the face, you wouldn't necessarily think, have to think of the Egyptian god Bess. And I think that what we have over here is simply a convention way, a conventional way of saying, this is a god whose face you cannot see, because if you see him, or, and in this case, her, you die. This is exactly what the commandments are talking about. You shall not make a likeness of me of anything that is in heaven or on earth. But here, God is represented as having a human body. What chutzpah? However, at the same time, I want to say with chutzpah, I can say, tell me the story of Abraham and the three strangers. Abraham comes, and he sees three people coming up, and he invites them to sit down and eat. 
And he says, you sit down here, I'm going to give you water, we're going to wash your hands, you're going to wash your hands, your feet, your faces, and go, and he brings them, he brings them a real trafe meal, okay? Okay, he has milk and meat, curds and, and meat, that's okay, it's before Sinai, so it's okay. In other, and then he finds out that this is God and two messengers. According to rabbinic tradition, one of them is Michael, one is Gabriel, and one of them is Raphael. One to heal, and one to heal Abraham, and one to rescue Lot uh, from, from the city of Storm. But in the biblical period, there was a sense that this, our God who is invisible, our God who teaches us ethics, our God who gives us laws, has a humanoid presence. And that's why you can talk about the mouth of God and the hands of God, etc., that's, it, 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 it enables us to speak of God metaphorically. But here you have the metaphor translated into art. But there's a limit to the chutzpah. There's a limit to this, and the limit is expressed through the use of the best head over here that's selling this. This is the divine, and it's illustrated. Now... The thing that makes this very likely is the inscription over them speaks of God and his Asherah. And the name of this tree, of the sacred tree, is also an Asherah. And finally, in the fortress of Adrud itself, in the long length, that's facing north towards Jerusalem. There's a little pedestal over here against the wall and a pedestal over here against the wall. Okay. On the other side, there's a kitchen over there and a kitchen over here. Each of the kitchens is preparing what is appropriate to present to whatever image was on that pedestal and what was on that pedestal. Gods have different diets. And so what we have over here is a wonderful, wonderful example, not only expressed in the archaeology and not only in the drawings, because we wouldn't necessarily know how to interpret these drawings, but also in the inscription. And this is only one of many inscriptions at the site all of which mention God and his Asherah. <clears throat> so when the Bible and when the various prophets are speaking against idolatry, against pagan-influenced thinking, this is what they have in mind. But where was this found? This was found on top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. It served absolutely no practical purpose for anything except for the worship of these two characters. Who would sponsor such a thing? Who worked there? We don't know because we never, nothing was found. No living quarters were found. So people most likely who worked there lived down below. But who would pay for this? It had to be sponsored by the royal powers in Jerusalem. And so what we have over here is a royal-sponsored religious site in the middle of Sinai. 
approximately forgotten in the middle, uh, forgotten until this fellow Zev Meschel went looking for a fort, excavated his fort, and found a cult site of ancient Israel. No, that's that's actually a one. That's a, that's a very important question because uh, because the absence of that, we found no altars there. We found no evidence of sacrifice there. Um, we found other evidence that people prayed there in terms of the inscriptions. Again, we have more evidence of the inscriptions, but it's clear that the place was abandoned. That is to say. What's left over here is the garbage that wasn't taken away. And so, the, if I, if, again, if I want to invent the backstory, I can say they took away the stuff that was legitimate for the worship of the God of Israel, and they left the stuff from this offbeat, crazy cult that was established in the <coughs> middle of nowhere. Okay? And all this, just because we have a few letters from the dead. Thank you. Questions? <laughs> so on, on the picture of the couple, yes. the, there's yet a third, the liar player. Correct. What, what significance is the liar? I, whatever they're doing, they're doing it to music, but I don't know what they're doing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, music plays an important part in all religions. So our psalms, are, all the psalms are, are, are musical, we're, we're accompanied to music. And, um, but in this particular case, we don't know. Also, incidentally, the scribble lines that, you, uh, that at the bottom underneath the lyre figure, the, that's, those are Egyptian numbers. It's the number seven repeated over and over and over and over. And number seven, the number seven is a symbolic number for wholeness and completeness in the Bible. Any other questions? So was this your original, like how do, how do you, is this, is this what you studied? Well, when it first came out, I studied it. I'm now working on a book on this. Yes. You're talking which figures? Yeah. Ah, you see that head sticking in? Okay. I don't know what to make of it. Um, it could be a viper, but we're missing the body of the animal. It also could be a drawing. But you, you see underneath the head, there's, it looks there are two lines that are coming out. It looks like a foot. So it also could be a grazing animal with the foot out bending down to, uh, to uh, eat something. But it's, it's just missing, so it can't help. Also, if you'll take a look underneath the foot, you can see the drawing of a lotus flower. That, like that's, that flower with the, that thing with three petals. So, can yes. Are these very unusual findings, or as they dig below into the old city, as they're still doing in Jerusalem? <coughs> are they finding things like this? All the time? No, 
this is unique. Remember, this was found, this was, this was found in the early 70s. And nothing like this has been found in Israel anywhere. It's very, it's very unique. No, be, uh, no, because of its because of its age, we just we haven't found it in in Jerusalem. They are below this historical period, but remember, archaeology is a, is a hit or miss proposition. Sometimes you're lucky and you can find something like this. You could had had, had Meschel, Meschel originally wanted to start excavating on another part of the site, and he would have missed all of this. It was just by accident, because the other part of the site produced buildings, no pottery, no, it, it, did, it produced a few drawings, but nothing interesting. So this is near as old as it gets if we get on the end. For this type of material, yes. If you'll, if you'll, if you'll write down the name Kuntilit Ajrud, you can actually Google it, and you'll see some fine photographs of the site. Actually, you have it. Let's go back just for a moment to the alphabet, because this is, this is what's important. Another thing that's important. <clears throat> Roughly speaking, each of these alphabets, you see the modern Hebrew up on top, and then one, two, three, four, five. Those are alphabets from, taken from different inscriptions roughly going from 10th, 10th, 9th, 8th, 7th, 6th centuries. So you can see how letter shapes change if you go down each column. Now, I'm sure everybody has seen and knows what a Torah looks like from the inside. And it does not look like any of these alphabets. Yet, the Torah was clearly written in the biblical period when these alphabets were being used. Which means, as the Torah was being copied and recopied for the next generation and the next generation, it moved from one alphabet to the next alphabet to the next alphabet. And what we call the modern Hebrew alphabet is actually an Aramaic alphabet developed in the area of Damascus, used to write Aramaic, a different language. So why do we use an Aramaic alphabet to write our Hebrew Torah? Aramaic was a language that was known from northern India, where we have inscriptions, across Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, all the way down to Egypt. In all of these places, we have, Aramaic, we have Aramaic texts. People knew Aramaic. It was a lingua franca. It was what France, French was before the First World War, what English is today for commerce. When the temple was destroyed and people go into exile, they learned Aramaic. They stopped reading this chicken scratch, old style type of Hebrew. They learned to read Aramaic. So why couldn't they get the Torah in Aramaic script? And they did. And that's what was handed down to us. 
but it's important for us to realize that originally the Torah would have been written in these alphabets and handed down in these alphabets. Has any of that been found or fragments? In the Dead Sea Scrolls, most of which are written in the Aramaic alphabet, in a number of scrolls, the name of God is written using the old alphabet. What's even more interesting is there are Greek, there's, thank you. there are Greek tr translations of the Bible, the Septuagint was translated into Greek. In some of the earliest manuscripts, the name of God is written in the old Hebrew alphabet, which tells us that these were translations by Jews for Jews. When it's taken over and Christians begin to use the Septuagint, they take the old Hebrew alphabet and they turn it into a number of Greek letters that look like the old Hebrew letters. So God seems to have a name like Pepe. Okay? Um, it, 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 it's just, it's a funny, it's a very funny, um, it, it's, a, it's a funny arrangement. But they always tried to keep the name of God a little different, so that was the only part that was preserved. Now, when a scribe writes a Torah scroll today, very often he does not write okay, the name of God. Because if you're writing the name of God into a Torah scroll, you have to be in a state of ritual purity. So you go to the mikvah. Then you make the bracha, and now you're OK. And now you write the name of God everywhere you left blank. <laughs> Okay, because otherwise you'd be you'd be writing a verse, then you'd be running to the mikvah, you'd come back and then write the name of God and then go. So it's a convenient way of doing it. But it means that the name, even today, scribes treat that as a special, as a, as a, as a something particularly special in their in their craft. So letters from the dead give us information about alphabets, about biblical culture, about the positive things that were going on about the negative things to which biblical literature refers. Uh, and it shows that in many ways, by being just clever and asking the right questions, we can gain some insight into what the ancestors of our ancestors thought and how they acted when they were alive and doing well. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.